I'm the deputy chairman of the state of Illinois Black Panther Party, Fred Hampton. We work with anybody and form coalition with anybody that has revolution on their mind. We might not be back. I might be in jail. I might be anywhere. But when I leave, you can remember I said with the last words on my lips that I am a revolutionary. And you're going to have to keep on saying that. You're going to have to say that I am a proletarian. I am the people. I'm not the pig. You've got to make a distinction. And the people are going to have to attack the pigs. The people are going to have to stand up against the pigs. That's what the Panthers are doing. That's what the Panthers are doing all over the world. We're not a racist organization because we understand that racism is an excuse used for capitalism. And we know that racism is just is, is a byproduct of capitalism. We don't hate the motherfucking white people. We hate the oppressor, whether he be white, black, brown, or yellow. We're going to fight racism, not racism, but we're going to fight with solidarity. We said we're not going to fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we're going to fight it with socialism. Everything would be all right if everything was put back in the hands of the people. And we're going to have to put it back in the hands of the people. And these people in this class have divided themselves. They say, I'm black and I hate white people. I'm white and I hate black people. I'm Latin American and I hate hillbillies. I'm hillbillies and I hate Indians. So we fight amongst each other. Nothing's more important than stopping fascism because fascism will stop us all. That's the people's thing. Socialism is the people. You're afraid of yourself. If you're afraid of socialism, you're afraid of yourself. All right. We're here with uh, Toussaint Lossier, an assistant professor in the W.E.B. Du Bois Department of Afro-American Studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He is the uh, vice chairman of the Chicago anti-eviction campaign and the uh, co-author of Rethinking the American Prison Movement and working on a book called War for the City, Black Liberation and the Consolidation of the Carlsville State. Our friend Jared from Hardcrackers told me that this was the guy to talk to about the the movie Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, but he put us in touch with someone who's even more the guy to talk to, uh, which is uh, uh, Bradley Green, who was a member of the Chicago Black Panther Party in the late 60s until 1972. Uh, at that point, he was a prison activist with the New African Prisoner Organization um, and continues to be a labor activist and a writer. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Wonderful. Glad to join you all. Happy to join you. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, So as you all listeners have probably gathered by now, we're going to be discussing the new movie directed by Shaka King, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, which tells the story of Fred Hampton and the Chicago Black Panther Party in the late 1960s and how they were infiltrated by an FBI informant named Bill O'Neill, ultimately contributing to Hampton's murder by the police and the FBI. Um, So we're going to use this film as a jumping off point to discuss the Black Panther Party, Black Marxism more generally, perhaps where we go from here. We'll we'll see where the conversation takes us. But um, yeah, thanks again for joining us, guys. I'm happy to join you. Yeah, glad we could make this happen. So Bradley, would you like to start by just telling us a bit about who you are, your life, and and your, your time in the Black Panther Party? Yes, I, I don't mind at all. Um, I was raised um, in in a housing project in Chicago called Ida B. Wells. My mother uh, became an activist in the late 50s. Um, and I really, really uh, didn't get this into it. This meeting is being recorded. Oh, whoops. That's cool. You can keep, you can keep going. <laughs> I didn't get into uh, the movement until like about 19, uh, 
63. Uh, my mother had us, there was some Chicago uh, school boycotts because of the, Chicago was a segregated school system. They had what they called a neighborhood school system. We, you know, you couldn't um, go to school outside of your neighborhood. So that was a you know very, very segregated system. And my mother had, and all my brothers and sisters were arrested demonstrating against that. All of them except me, because I was, you know, younger and I was into sports. And um, the sports led me to um, get a scholarship in basketball at the University of Arizona in 1965. And in 1965, I became um, more conscious of what was going on. And it was... It was it was almost like what happened brought out what was inside of me that my mother had been preaching to me for so, all my life. You know, um, I remember at a very very young age, my mother had told me that uh, if she caught me saying the pledge of allegiance or singing the national anthem, she would beat me. I couldn't stand. She said, I, "I she better not even hear about me standing for the pledge of allegiance," <laughs> and that was a daily school ritual in Chicago at that time, you had to stand up and, and put your hand over your heart and say the Pledge of Allegiance before class. Um, so I became an activist uh, in around the time that the Black Power Movement swept the country. Um, it was it was an enlightening time to see uh, people uh, just coming out of apartheid uh, with the passage of the civil rights bills in 65 and 64 to see people, uh, there was a, a, a market change. Uh, almost every campus had a black student union on it. Uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, Stokely Carmichael. I remember Stokely Carmichael as, as an outgoing chairman of SNCC had said, uh, if you think I'm something, wait until the, you see the next chairman, which was H. Rap Brown. <laughs> and um, I joined the Black Panther Party in, in, when I came home from college in, in, in June of uh, 1969. And I was in the party for on the street for one year, and it felt like it was 25 years. Uh, in, in talking to people uh, about the party and about Fred Hampton's assassination, after Jake Winters was killed on November the 13th, Fred had a what we had we had what we call a purge in the party where he, Fred was trying to take the party to another level, to a higher level, and um, that period couldn't have lasted three weeks, but it felt like it was three or four months. That's how intense it was. It was hour by hour. When, we, when you say now 24-7, that's exactly how the party functioned, 24-7. You, you barely could get some sleep before there was something else you had to do or being involved in, whether it be the breakfast program, going to a political education class, or doing political work in the community. Uh, and that depended on you know what community you were in. Um, and and what cadre you were on? It was was the purge targeted against people who who didn't have that level of commitment? Mostly, the purge. The what Fred said, 
uh, verbatim was that he was purging the entire party because most of the people who were in leadership only got their positions because they were there at the beginning. So it was a period, it was, it was a purifying purge to, to the leadership. Everything would be turned upside down. And um, one of the things I've always said is that there was a triple assassination, you know, um, that Fred, the people who benefited from Fred being purged were people who were in leadership who got their positions back when Fred was killed. And um, some of them would not have been in leadership had Fred not been killed. And then I, I would say, you know, Fred was killed. Uh, the Black Liberation Movement was killed and the Black Panther Party was killed. It was a triple assassination. Wow. So uh, what are your thoughts on the movie? It's more horrible than I thought it w would be. I, I objected to the movie before it was, uh, before it came out. Um, a friend of mine went to Cleveland while they were filming it, and they, they were critical of the fact that it was being filmed from the perspective of um, William O'Neill. He was never called Bill O'Neill. Never, ever, ever did they say that name, Bill. It was William O'Neill. Um, but not talking about getting hung up on the name, but um, just telling that movie from the perspective of a of, of a snitch, it to me is like um, it's, it's propaganda. Everything is propaganda, but it it it, it sends a defeatist message to people. Like we were able to topple your attempt at resistance by infiltrating you. And this is something, you know, I mean, it, it's almost like glorifying uh, something that's that's really horrible and distasteful. Now, I, 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 I have no doubt that Bill O'Neill was an agent because he continued to be an agent after the party. Um, and he was also, which is very little talked about, um, there was a split in the Black Panther Party in Chicago where a lot of the older people who had been in the party a longer time left the party in September of 1970. This was pre the split between Eldridge Cleaver and, and UEP Newton. Um, so what, William O'Neill was also part of that split. That's that's never talked about. So, also, uh, after he left the party, he still worked for the, the the FBI, and they they allowed him to in order to get he he informed on a Chicago police officer who was convicted of shooting killing drug dealers, and. Um, they allowed him to shoot somebody on the Dan Ryan Expressway in Chicago, you know, at, at 70 or 75 miles an hour. And um, that that's how he got the trust of uh, Stanley Robinson. And the two other people with him were um, Nathaniel Jr. and Robert Bruce. 
And unfortunately, I was on the tier with Robert Bruce for about two or three months. And William O'Neill, not Bill, visited him every Tuesday when, when we had visits. Uh, but the movie to me is, um, I'm, I'm torn about the movie. Um, one, you know, everything has uh, a good and a bad side, you know, in dialectics. So I'm happy that people are talking about Fred Hampton. I'm happy that people are talking about the Black Panther Party. Um, in light of what's going on, you know, since George Floyd was killed and the resistance that people have been uh, putting up to and, and pushing for social justice. So I'm happy about that. I'm just so unhappy that it's so, it's the most um, incorrect and, 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 and it, it has such, such large gaps in it that it, it, it's almost, I, I know they had to be used, you know, dramatic license and all that, but they could have done a lot better in presenting what actually happened than they did. Most of it is, is you know, it, it, it's just, it's been too much time on, on things that are not important to make it, you know, make, to humanize Fred and to humanize O'Neill. And, and, you know, I, I just take, um, Real offense to the the shootout scene at the at the office that didn't happen, uh, and 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 I think it's 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 traumatic to the people who who were in the office when they raided it. O'Neill was never in the office when it was raided. Uh, I mean, just thinking about it, the FBI would never have allowed there. A snitch to be killed by the, or beaten like that by the Chicago Police Department. There were three raids on the office of the summer of 1970. I think one was around June the 8th. Uh, one was July 31st and one was October the 4th. Uh, the people who were beat, who were in the office on July the 31st and October the 4th were beaten let me correct myself. They were tortured. <laughs> you were among them, right? I was. I was arrested in the raid on October the fourth. The, they beat us like they beat slaves uh, on the plantation. There were five or six hundred people. It was a Friday night. There were five or six hundred people who were out in the streets partying. That were surrounded. The office surrounded. You there? Shooting over their heads, and they didn't stop beating us. They beat us um, in front of a, the next to the office was a funeral was a funeral home. They lined us up on the funeral home and beat us. Instead of searching us, they beat us all over every inch of our body that they would have searched us with a club with a gun or a club. And then uh, they took us to the police station and they beat us twice, twice again. And one of the individuals that they beat, um, he never came back to the office again. Uh, he was the one that they had uh, falsely targeted as being the person who fired the shot at the police officer. 
and um, they, I, I thought he, they had beaten him. Uh, I thought they had killed him. They beat him so bad because when they turned him over, they they were pushing, hit, they were slamming his face into the concrete. A guy was sitting on his back, slamming his face into the concrete, and when they turned him over, he was covered in blood from his head to his waist. It was just blood. I thought he was dead until he made a sound. And um, it was it was a horrible thing to, to 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 for them to show the the people who were arrested in on July the thirty first. They were arrested inside the office, and everyone. When I went to court, every one of them had a broken limb, whether it be a leg or an arm, and all of them had their head was their head was covered in bandages. You know, they had a, a white turban on bandages from from the beating they received, and um, to, to 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 display a shootout scene where it wasn't. You know, I, they had to be talking about what happened on the thirty first because that was the, the only time that they burned the office. So they just took a little information and 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 skewed it. But the most inaccurate part of the movie was around. Um, Jake Winters and Lance Bell. They didn't even mention Lance Bell's name, period. Like Jake Winters went and did something by himself. Um, and Lance Bell was larger than life. He was he was about 350 pounds. So how do you take a 350-pound man out of history? Mm. Um, I, I heard an interview with uh, the Lucas Brothers um, on our, our our friend's podcast, Pod Down America, recently, and um, you know they 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 mentioned that they had to cut a lot out of the story uh, just you know to make it uh, to make the screenplay, um, but they they claim to really want to uh, be accurate with some of the characters, specifically um, Fred Hampton, and, and definitely the scene where um, Fred Hampton was murdered. And they mentioned that uh, his fiance Akua Najiri wa- was on set. Um, so I was curious about how well you that, think they that, did. That probably might have been that might probably might have been correct about mm-hmm. what happened inside the apartment. And I know they had to, you know, the movie would have been nine hours long if they had done a movie, right? Uh, Which would be if cool. They put everything in that happened. Uh, it would have had to be a, a series. <laughs> um, Maybe they maybe they should make restitution by doing a series mm. and doing it correctly, and hopefully you could work on it. Um, well, I I don't think I could be in the room with those people. <laughs> I feel like it's kind of a Rorschach test, almost like what message you come away with from the movie. Because uh, I came away feeling very emotional and very much like we owe it to Fred Hampton and all of our murdered comrades to complete the revolution and to finish what they started. Um, But I can see how the movie could also have room and it is getting a lot of accolades and a lot of liberals like it. Um, I can see how it also leaves room for liberals to be like, well, you know, it was complicated. The free breakfast program was good, but the, you know, the violent self-defense, I don't know, maybe that was bad. So like, I I can see people taking away both messages from it. Yeah, I think that's why they cut Lance Bell out of the movie, because he lived. Jake was killed the night of November the 13th, but Lance Bell was killed. And um, so 
what happened on November the 13th directly relates to what happened on December the 4th. This was beyond a doubt a revenge killing. This was a revenge killing. And not to put that in the movie uh, takes uh, away from what really happened. That's like saying uh, you're going to take battles out of the, you talk about the Civil War, but you're going to take Gettysburg out. (laughs) You know, you're going to take major scenes that happened. Pearl Harbor didn't happen. <laughs> you know, you're going to talk about World War II, but you're not going to talk about Pearl Harbor. Or you're not going to talk about Nagasaki and Hiroshima. It doesn't, I mean, if you're talking about the whole thing, if you're talking about one specific battle, then if you said to say the assassination of Fred Hampton, and this is what happened, it, it, it's kind of, um, you know, not so bad. But the, the um, they also showed, and, and they said she was on the scene, uh, Akua was on the scene. I've talked to a lot of people who have a lot of problems uh, with the, um, how they showed that O'Neill was supposedly drugged Fred Hampton. And I've, I've spoken to some attorneys that were, you know, won the Fred Hampton lawsuit. And one of them said that uh, there were three autopsies. And uh, I think they said only one of them showed that he had sequinol in his blood. They were saying the first one done by the FBI, I'm not sure, I'm not an expert, didn't show it. And then the family had another one done and they they said that it, it was possible that he had it or something. And then there was a third one saying he didn't have anything in the system. I happened to sleep in that apartment on a number of occasions. And I happened to know that we, we live like almost like hippies and that it would have been impossible for someone uh, to make a batch of Kool-Aid and not everybody, and not everybody would have been knocked out. Um, I, I just can't see... Um, that's happening. I can't see Fred Hampton, especially during that period of time, uh, saying, let no Neil bring him a, a glass of anything. You know, it's just, it's just strange. That's not the way the apartment was set up. Um, Fred's bedroom was, was uh, off the uh, dining room and off, off the kitchen. And, um, I did tours of that apartment when after Fred was killed and there was no group scene where everybody was, there was no area where everybody was sitting around and, you know, in the dining room, the dining room was a bedroom. There was a mattress. That's where I slept in between where Fred slept and the, and the, and the kitchen whenever I slept in that apartment. So, um, it's, it, you know, I, I think that, you know, like I said, there's some good things about the movie. It's creating interest, and, and some people are, are praising it. And hopefully it'll lead, uh, a bad thing will turn into a good thing, and, and it'll we'll, we'll complete that process of uh, winning the revolution for Fred. Uh, just one more question about the accuracy. Uh, like, like Jamie said, I was really uh, moved by uh, Fred Hampton's portrayal in the movie and the speeches he gave. You know, I had, I had read the speeches 
before, but it, I, I, it was very moving to see it on film. I was wondering how how accurate uh, those scenes were, how accurate the portrayal of Fred Hampton was. I don't think that was moving because I don't think they used the right actor, but it was it was it was accurate as to what Fred actually said. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we can argue until the cows come home about other people being able to, you know, portray. I mean, if you've seen the murder of Fred Hampton, uh, he's such an electrifying, such a charismatic person. Um to just put it bluntly, he was a combination of of, of Malcolm X and 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 uh, Martin Luther King. As a matter of fact, we did uh, um, we picked up Elaine Brown and David Hilliard from O'Hare Airport, and on the way to the airport, Fred Hampton verbatim did uh, a Martin Luther King uh, album. You know, he just the speech that Martin Luther King did, he, he knew it verbatim. And on the way back, he did Malcolm X. So, I mean, he was an absolute combo. You know, he was, uh, he was just electrifying and, 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 and charismatic. I, I, I like, I like the movie in terms of it, it's something that's going to start a discussion. And, and then, you know, it's, it's a, it's a beginning point. It's not an end. So the movie depicts the attempts of the Chicago Black Panther Party to unify the gangs uh, under and various disparate groups under the Black Panther Party's program. It's something called the Rainbow Coalition, uh, despite the rifts between these different groups that were in large part caused by police sabotage and disinformation. So how did they... Everything okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Okay. Um, you're still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Can okay, you hear great. me? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Um, so how were they able to overcome these divides and unite these groups together in a really impressive way? Yeah, that that's another inaccurate part about the movie that um the Black Panther the Rainbow Coalition basically in the movie they talk about the the young lords and they talk about the uh the Patriots, they don't talk about the black disciples. And that was a really big breakthrough because um, Chicago is um, a city that's that's like always been like, um, I can't think of the name of the country, but with the, the movie where they had Black Hawk Down. Um, you, is that Somalia? It's always been, yes, it's always Ogadishu. been like, uh, Somalia, yeah, and to be able to go in and 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 to talk to uh, the the disciples and get them to uh, unite around a you know common platform and stuff, um, and that's another aspect of the movie. Jake Winners was a disciple, and he asked uh, he asked David Boxdale for permission to join the Panthers. And I'm assuming that Lance Bell was too. Um, Lance Bell's not around, so I can't ask him that question anymore. But um, I thought that maybe the crowns were kind of a, supposed to be the, the disciples. No, 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 no. I thought the crowns 
were the were the vice lords, and he talked. To, they probably tried to probably would told don't use that name. Uh-huh. But uh, I can't. David um, and 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 um, maybe maybe it was the uh, maybe that was it. But maybe like a composite. I couldn't figure out who the crowds was. That was another thing that that I asked people. Nobody will, nobody would touch it. Uh-huh. Nobody would touch that question. Who were who were the so called crowds? Because he did have unity with the disciples. You know, the disciples were part of the Rainbow Coalition. You know, and I'm from the South Side. I went to a school where the disciples. I went to school in the disciple neighborhood. You know, um, and. Jamie was correct. There was there was so much uh, police um, besides the Go and Tell program in Chicago. They had the gang intelligence unit, which uh, kept up strife between the gangs. What they would do is they would kidnap a stone and take him to a disciple neighborhood, and they would kick him out the car and holler "Almighty Blackstone" and. Uh, they would kidnap a disciple and take him to a stone neighborhood and kick him out the car and, and, uh, holler, uh, uh, black disciples or no, it wasn't black disciples. It was before the, before they joined the black Panther party, the disciples were called the devil's disciples. And, um, they just kept up a lot of, uh, conflict and stuff between them. Yeah. I just want to add one thing. Like, um, in addition to, what um, Brad was saying about how the Rainbow Coalition was um, like not fully portrayed. I, one of the things I thought was striking about it was um, the film kind of presents it as, um, you know, something that sort of built off of like maybe one or two meetings um, that was, that took place that, you know, members of the party attended. And obviously all of this is pretty well documented, and um, I think it's the American Revolution too. Is is the is the film, but you know that the the kind of building of the Rainbow Coalition, it, it was a real solid organizing project, and you know that was led by Cadre and the party, um, especially um, uh, Bob Lee was one of the key um, you know party members who who helped. Um, do a lot of the outreach to different organizations, um, especially the Young Patriots, but others as well. And I think one of the things that I think is striking is that there's like a brief clip of Lee doing some of that, um, the actual organizing work um, at the very beginning of the film when they do all those sort of black and white montage, um, montage clips of kind of the Black Panther Party. But um, yeah, the degree to which the Rainbow Coalition is broader than just the Patriots and the Young Lords, but also the degree to which a lot of it was built off of not simply just, you know, um, the question of um, the the kind of fighting back against the police terror that was taking place or just maybe like a, um, attending kind of one or two meetings, but really the kind of like you know, serious organizing work that went into building that and the way in which, um, you know, you had, as far as I've been able to tell, just looking at some of the history, you had, you know, members of the Rainbow Coalition, you know, protesting, um, 
like welfare offices and holding joint demonstrations around a whole host of issues that built off of the kind of common um, programs that they had, um, but doing it in a way that wasn't just kind of like in a singular focus and also was was built off of this like kind of um, kind of protracted organizing project that you had folks in the party take on. What I was going to say is that, thankfully, uh, Bob Lee did most of the work, but thankfully his lieutenant, his name is Hank Gaddis, uh, they call him Poison, is, Poison. is yep. still, he, he lives in Houston, Texas, Texas. he's still around, and I, I hadn't talked to him because I didn't remember him from the party, but I talked to him uh, recently around a campaign that we were working together on. And it was like a uh, coming to Jesus moment for me when I first talked to him. Uh, he did a lot of that work uh, with the Rainbow Coalition, um, and he's still around today. So, you know, I can give people uh, numbers so that, you know, people can talk to him. And it, it, it's, it's just enlightening. Uh, and also, in, in talking about the Rainbow Coalition, it's good to note that, um, well, in the summer of uh, 1969, uh, Students for Democratic Society split. And one of the factions, I don't remember RIM 1, RIM 2, or RIM 3, I don't remember which one, but one of them, one of the factions became the Weather Underground. The other one became... Uh, what was called the Intercommunal Survival Committee. And uh, the Intercommunal Survival Committee actually organized in the uh, uptown neighborhood. And some of the members of the Young Patriots went, went over. And it became, it, uh, they, they were rock solid and uh, they, they lasted even longer than the party in Chicago. When I got out of prison in, in 1978, they were still functioning and the party had stopped functioning in um, 1974, in April of 1974. And the the person who was the leader of um, the Intercommunal Survival Committee, his name is Slim Coleman. Uh, He's a reverend now, Reverend Walter Slim Coleman. And also uh, one of the persons in the leadership was Helen Schiller. And she was an alderman for a long, long time in Chicago. Yeah, so you mentioned, oh, sorry. Go ahead. There was also another guy. I think his name was Jack Hart, who was who was part of that leadership, you know. And and though Helen Schiller, Slim Coleman, and uh, Helen Schiller, they're still around. And and when you talk about the Black Panther Party, they should be interviewed, you know, and they should have been consulted on that movie also. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, you mentioned the Young Patriots. Um, and when we're talking about this coalition um, who were poor white migrants from Appalachia who did at times fly the Confederate flag. Um, and in the discourse. Hank Gattis says that didn't happen. Oh. Hank Gattis says that, that, that Confederate, what Hank Gattis said was that uh, the scene where they show um, Fred Hampton going to the, uh, Young Patriot uh, to the, to the Patriots, that was Bob Lee. Those what Fred never went, and also uh, that there was no Confederate flag there. 
That was that was the the movie makers, you know, dramatic license. You know, okay, uh, that's you know, a lot of that stuff is gonna be in dispute. Um, but I I'd rather talk to people who were there. Uh, I don't think Bob Lee went anywhere without Hank Gaddis, you know, uh, at that particular point in time. So he would probably be the most accurate person to talk to about, uh, you know, building the Rainbow Coalition. Yeah, that's super important because I've heard it this uh, trotted out recently as some sort of evidence or example that the left needs to be more welcoming to people with racist or otherwise problematic views, even <laughs> members of reactionary movements like the Boogaloo Boys, like oh, that seems ridiculous to me. It is ridiculous. It's a ridiculous concept. It's a ridiculous concept. If people are not going to be uh, for the people and they're going to be anti-progressive, uh, you can't unite with them. Mao Zedong says we a true revolutionary unites with real friends in order to fight real enemies. And you can't uh, unite with somebody that's not a real friend. You, you, you have no basis for, for, for unity. You might have a truce, but not, uh, you can't work with them. You can't develop a program around somebody who's reactionary. Uh, you just mentioned, um, uh, chairman Mao and, uh, early on in the movie, um, I, I feel like this was intentional, they show the political education within the party, um, you know, discussing, you know, revolutionary program and Maoism. And then after Fred Hampton comes back, he gives a speech. And the part of the speech that we see is largely about, you know, the need to, to off the pigs. And I think the, the message of that that the filmmakers were, were showing is that through counterintelligence um, and, you know, assaults on the party, they became like too radical and too angry and forgot their their revolutionary roots. Uh, do you, do you think that there's anything to that? Um, and then I guess a more general question is, is: What do you think of the the political trajectory of the party um, post Fred Hampton? You just asked about five questions. I'm sorry, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but all of them really great questions. All of them are really great questions. Um, I don't think that the party when Fred Hampton's leadership went too far uh, to the left and, and, and uh, went too far as uh, proposing um, armed struggle as being the course that Fred kept the people in the party on an even keel uh, about doing uh, programs and working around what, what needed to be done and building slowly and not trying to, uh, I remember Fred was criticized, uh, the weather underground, uh, who, who were, uh, they had the days of rage that, while Fred was still alive in like October of 1969. And Fred said that spontaneity was the ideology of the opportunists. You know, an opportunist can be either left opportunist or right opportunist. Uh, a left opportunist wants to do things before the people are ready for them, and the right opportunist wants to travel behind what the, the people can actually do. But Fred was Fred was very clear. Uh, Fred was uh, um, not only uh, charismatic and 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 a great uh, speaker. 
Fred was also a great organizer. Fred understood, you know, doing small things in order to be, before you could do big things. Now, the, the ideology of the party went through a myriad of changes between uh, the inception in 1966 and, um, um, you know, up to Fred Hampton's death. But I don't think, you know, when, when Fred, basically, when he said, you know, off the pig, it wasn't like um, go out and do something stupid. It was more that if we were attacked, that we would fight back. And, you know, that was one of the, always one of the major tenets of the Black Panther Party is that we were not going to turn the other cheek. If somebody um, crossed our doorstep illegally, we're going to make them run. We're not going to uh, cower. And uh, and that was based on, uh, hint, on history, on centuries and centuries of... of, of, of uh, the boogeyman of the Klan and, and, and white people, you know, attacking black people like in Tulsa and like in Rosewood and Forsyth County. Uh, just a history of terror that we were not going to be, you know, terrorized anymore. Uh, and I, it wasn't like Fred was teaching, uh, you know, like uh, guerrilla warfare. That's not what he was. That's not what he meant. And 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 so for um, people talking about violence, the violence all came from 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 the police. It wasn't aggressive. Um, even the story of Jake Winters and Lance Bell, they were defending themselves. That's, it wasn't like they were out to, to uh, attack police officers. They, they were doing whatever they were doing in the community and they were attacked by the police and they retreated into a building. Um, and they were surrounded by police who fired thousands and thousands of shots at them. You can't imagine what a shootout like that would have been uh, with the police officer needs assistance and, 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 and a firefight, you know? And, and that's why I'm, I'm so upset that, um, like I said, Fred was murdered in revenge for what happened with Lance Bell and, and uh, Jake Winters. And not to put that in the movie, it, it, it's like a distortion, a complete distortion or, or revision of history. And like you said, you can't put everything in, but to be so unclear about what even happened with Jake Winters, um, it's just absolutely horrific. Do you? Does anybody know what happened? Yeah, I found that part of the movie pretty confusing myself. No, I, I was speaking to... Uh, to say on that, I think he has a little knows a little bit about what happened with Jake Winters and and uh, Lance Bell. The thing that is striking about the portrayal in the film is um, it's not completely clear uh, why the firefight happens, and it's also not um, you know it's, it's dramatized in the way in which. It's sort of a um, it's sort of a moment of revenge, but in a way that sort of is taken up pretty um, you know in an unplanned kind of way. And the thing that I think is even more compelling about just the history of it is you know you have um, as you know as Brad was saying that um, was it forty eighth and Cal you met on the 58. south side 
58th in Cal Um This the shootout that takes place, um, not near an oil refinery. And I think in the film, they actually said it was at like 48. Sorry, this is where the confusion comes from. In the film, they say it's like at 48th in Lawndale, um, which doesn't make that a whole was- lot of sense. <laughs> at an oil refinery. But also just, just the fact that it's, it's kind of um, an instance in... Uh, in which you have these two party members who are in an abandoned building and are able to hold off um, like dozens of Chicago police officers and are able to do it in a way... Not dozens, hundreds. (laughs) Hundreds of Chicago police officers. And are able to do it in a way where um, not only are they able to um, hold their own, but... um, uh, but Lance Bell survives, and um, he survives primarily because um, Jake Winters, at one point, they're, they're basically shooting out the window at the cops as they're, as they're coming to the building. And um, they're switching from window to window. So from the police, from the police account of it, they assume that there must have been they assume that there must have been dozens of Panthers there um, who are who are laying down fire when it's only two of them. And they're able to do it in a way where um, Jake Winters basically lays, not just lays down cover fire, but uh, I think at one point comes out of the building um, and um, provides Lansbell an opportunity to... Um, to get to some degree of safety. And I think it part of, I think what Brad is picking up on is that kind of um, sacrifice and that kind of solidarity is a real high point in terms of what the, what the party was able to kind of um, like, not just instill, but provide people a vehicle to kind of demonstrate. Um, And that kind of bravery in terms of, being willing to to fight back and stand up to the um, to the pigs in that instance, and then beyond that, um, the fact that Lance Bell survives and then um, is involved in you know organizing behind bars, like it's it's just kind of cutting, um, you know, from the party's history, cutting an important story short, and then beyond that. Um, it's it's inserted to the film, which is useful, but at the same time, you know, when you look and when you talk to folks who are uh, not just coming from Brad's perspective, but other people who are in the party and then other people who just follow what was taking place, um, it's really at that moment that the Chicago police have a vendetta against Fred Hampton. And it's at that moment that, you know, his photo is in squad cars and you have people not just in the party, but in other organizations who are like, you need to get out of town and you need to find a way to, um, uh, to not end up in the crosshairs of, um, of the police, um, regardless of, of what, you know, how things are shaking out with, the um, with the appeal bond and possibly having to go back, you know, having to go back to Menard, but just the fact that, um, the fact that, so many police officers are either wounded, um, several are killed from the shootout, and um, it kind of 
leaves the impression that the Panthers got the upper hand, um, that that really sets the stage for um, the police as well as City Hall and the um, Cook County State's Attorney's Office to really have a, you know, um, you know, kind of be on the mission to try to find, try and get Fred Hampton one way or another. To put it in perspective, Fred read the moment. After the shootout is when he called the purge because he knew the party was going to be attacked. He didn't, there was no doubt in Fred's mind that he had to up the, the consciousness and the readiness of the people in the party because an attack was imminent. Uh, you know, knowing the history and the brutality of uh, the Chicago Police Department, Fred read that moment and was trying to prepare party members to be more alert and to be uh, more conscious of security. Um, and what what happened on um, 58th Street, you know, I'm not trying to glorify violence or anything, but, uh, you know, you cannot turn the Black Panther Party into Buddhists. Uh, the, 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 the thing that attracted um, the people to the party was the fact that um, there were people who were standing up to, like I say, centuries of, of brutality and, and of, of oppression. You know, um, that was one of the main um, things that uh, attracted people to the party was that you don't have to be beaten down and there's some place for you to go and we can we can try to right this wrong and we can defend ourselves. Well, this touches on another question I had for you about about the life of the party, uh, which is the concept of of militancy. Um, I, I feel like the Black Panther Party was probably one of the last truly mass militant organizations in the United States. And a lot of people my age and younger don't really know what militancy means. We connect it to, you know, having a gun and like being, uh, you know, ready to, to take on the police. Um, but uh, historically, it's meant like this total commitment that you talked about before. And I, I think I read somewhere that uh, that that commitment actually, uh, maybe that was one of the, the reasons why you got out of the party, right? Um, so so you how know, do you- I, 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 I never left the party. I, I oh. went to jail. I never left the party. The party uh, disbanded while I was in jail. Um, there were, there were um, that was a, a concern, uh, you know, being able to work 24 uh, seven. But the, the militancy, uh, of the party, well, the genius of the Black Panther Party was the fact that they understood how to organize, that you organize people around the issues that are important to them. People can't eat rhetoric. They can't eat the words in a book. But people can understand if they have an issue and you come and you help them to organize other people in their community to fight for that issue, then, then you can get the support of that people. And, and that's why the party grew from um, a neighborhood group in Oakland, California, into a, a national and an international movement. Uh, the militancy of the party was a, was, was a major, major factor that led to its growth because after the death of Martin Luther King, the, the party grew by leaps and bounds. I, I would say that prior to um, 
uh, King's death, the party might have only existed in Oakland, California. Not not the Bay Area, San Francisco, Oakland, Richmond, Berkeley, you know. But but th that area there has always been a militant hotspot going back preceding the Black Panther Party. You know, the, the free speech movement started at Berkeley in the early 60s. Um, so, you know, spreading beyond that was, you know, caused by, you know, when King was assassinated. And uh, I, I believe that... Um, Fred, you know, being if he had lived, being able to uh, grow and mature politically, you know, would have been a major figure on the national level in the party and, and in the Black Liberation Movement in, in general. But I wanted to ask on the topic of militancy, um, whether we're talking about um, more... Uh, violent uprisings like the, the ones that have been exploding all over the world against the police uh, and the state and state repression, particularly here uh, in the, the George Floyd uprising, the more militant elements of that. Well, I guess I'm using militant wrong, but, you know, whether we're talking about these uprisings that fight the cops and then kind of die down for a while, or we're talking about something like the DSA, which is, you know, as we all know, extremely not violent and not threatening in any way, but has, you know, like probably a, a hundred thousand members or thereabouts, but maybe like half that number actually the do who? anything. The who? The DSA. Yeah, the, the, the Democratic Socialists of America, which oh. has a ton of members and is the closest yeah. thing to a mass socialist organization that we've seen in a very long time, but probably mm, I'd say less than half of the members actually do organizing work. Um, do you think that this kind of militancy, this kind of commitment is lacking today? Um, how do we bring it back? And what what advice do you have for people and movements who are trying to carry forward the struggle against capitalism and white supremacy um, into the present day and the future? Well, you 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 said it all. You you said the DSA has tons and tons of members, and and um, the the question on, you know, how do we you know, the, the movement ebbs and flows, you know, you, you go for long periods of time when there's little activity and then there's, you know, like with the George Floyd thing, there's like heightened activity. Um, so, the you know, the Black Panther Party was based on organizing. It was organized um, as a democratic centralist organization where the leadership was in control, but under the leadership under the, like, if you take the Illinois chapter, you had the uh, state staff, um, the, the state uh, central staff, then you had a local central staff, uh, and then you had section leaders, and everybody was responsible for doing, you know, the breakfast program, selling newspapers, and whatever work was done in the community around organizing. And, you know, everybody was supposed to submit a weekly report. Uh, so it, you, I, I think the key is uh, for everybody to find something that they want to put their heart into and, 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 and organize, and then you have to find 
you have to go to people and find what it is in in a community in in a in a in a labor movement. What is it that people want to organize around? What they want to uh, improve and change? Uh, it the, the revolution is not based on what we want, but it's based on what the people want and what the people will support. If we don't win the hearts and minds of the people, we can have a million, two, two million people, but it's not based on what people are willing to support. And if we, and, and so we need to, a, a lot of uh, revolutionaries are armchair revolutionaries. They sit around and they theorize rather than going out and actually, you know, theory is theory, but you have to put that theory into practice and make something practical happen and make help help people to improve their lives, help them to organize themselves so that they can uh, make life better for them themselves. And you can't just like, oh, theoretically, we should do this and we should do that. Uh, talk about Mao or, or Ho Chi Minh and Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. All that's good. But how do you put that into practice and in, into the community, into improving schools and, and uh, the conditions in the community? Um, so it's based on everybody going back to school to learn how to organize. And if that can be done, then we can make changes in leaps and bounds. Um, I think um, that in today's world, that people have got organizing mixed up with uh, demonstrations. I think there's so many more conscious people today that turn out to stuff than even turned out in the 60s. And there, and then people have the energy. They want to do something. They they want to, but to put 180 days into demonstrating, it's almost like, well, the pigs would love that because th those 180 days that you're not working with people, <laughs> and and the people are the are the revolution, not the revolutionaries. You know the the the. The party's uh, motto was we serve the people, body and soul. And, and and that's what people need to understand. You can look at the contradictions, the, the gap in um, inequality and the systematic racism, but talking about them doesn't change it. Demonstrating doesn't change it. You have to get down and, you know, get your uh, hands dirty and work with the people, work, work with the soil so that the people can... Um, um, can grow, you know, we, you know, we, you know, just us talking about what needs to be done. What needs to be done is who's going to do some actual work with, I mean, cause the people are ready. They've never been at a lower point. They can't get any lower. Um, I was, um, did some research on Detroit and, and it was almost scary uh, most of the young black people that I talk to that are middle class, you know, I ask them a question. I say, have conditions improved since the 60s? Are things better? And every to, to a T, every one of them has said, yes, things are a lot better. And I said, I'm not talking about, um, you know, uh, integration. I'm talking about economic conditions. And they say, yes, things have gotten better. I said, well, let's take Detroit, for example. Detroit 
1967, because of um, you know uh, General Motors and Motown and all the auto industry, the gap in the black income, the black and white income was only three to four hundred dollars. And I say today, the gap is thirty thousand dollars. So explain to me how things have gotten better, and that's because people take their eyes off the. Uh, what, what really needs to be done, take the eyes off the people, you know, to look at a few athletes, uh, a Shaq or uh, Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods, that doesn't mean that things are better for everybody else, you know? Um, so do you I think, think uh, that organizing you, is the key. Do you think that's something that's lacking when, when we look at uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, the movement for Black Lives, or the uh, or, or the uprising of last year around the, the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor? I cried when the 99% thing came out and only lasted about two weeks in Tucson, where I was at the time. I'm like, so much can be done if people are willing to do it. But they said, we don't want to be organized. We want to be free-flowing and that means that nothing is going to get done. A lot of people's, you know, over the throughout the country were supportive of that. But if you don't have a continue continuous program, what can be actually changed? I mean, we we probably had over five or six million people protest during the George Floyd thing, but. Don't get me wrong, I have nothing against demonstrations, but it has to be, what we said in the Black Panther Party, you have to take things from the lower level to the higher level. You can't always just be out on the street and with a sign demonstrate, you know, because like, again, people can't eat those signs, you know? Yeah, and you have to have something to demonstrate, right? Like I heard Boots Riley talking about this, like demonstrations were intended as a demonstration of the power behind the demonstration, you know, uh, the, the kind of power to shut down the economy and throw a wrench into the gears of the system. And I think sometimes uh, people maybe lose sight of that in the absence of a working class movement with power. Absolutely, because... Uh they're not going to people that really support what they're doing and asking, well, what would you like to contribute or what can you contribute? And, and, and so therefore uh, in in a few months when things that down, people get discouraged because nothing changed, nothing improved. You know, people like to see, you know, at least some type of uh, gradual change and, and if not, they get discouraged and they say, oh, nothing can be done about this, you know? Yeah. And there's so many progressive people in the world, but, you know, we have to look at, like, we need to focus and on something. I mean, everybody can't do the same thing, but we need to focus. Yeah, I feel that. Well, focus. I, we need to get our shit together. <laughs> like that's the main <laughs> takeaway that I had from this movie. Like, God damn it. We, ha we have to, we just have to, um, cause things are not getting better. But, um, I think, 
I think Andy has a question he wants to ask about. Um, Thank you, Jamie. Cortel Pro. Yeah. Um, say that Andy is very good at InfoSec. <laughs> yeah, no, Sean and I have known Andy for a very long time. And only in the past few years did we learn his real name. So good job. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I think part of the message of this movie was that even if you do create this great organization and even if you do have this charismatic, uh, brilliant leader, um, it could still get crushed because of uh, the the Pro style tactics um, that are that are central to the film. Um, so, uh, as someone who's around uh, for that, um, how did you deal with that paranoia, like knowing that those those tactics were going on and that there was informants? Um, do you and do you think that uh, th- that's a result of you know the kind of threat that you posed and like what can people do today? knowing that those tactics could come back at some point? I'm, I'm so happy you asked that question because in the Black Panther Party, which was a, a above-ground organization, above-ground political organization, we always knew we were infiltrated. I, be, I, I do not, you know, I understand that they did whatever they did, but I do not hold... Um, I'm not one of those people who advocate that the movement was destroyed by the Cointel program. I don't believe that. I know they were uh, a, an enemy, and and they were uh, a, and they did certain things. But I don't believe that the movement fell, that it rose or fell because of anything, uh, any anything somebody was doing from the outside. In in dialectics, uh, it's the internal contradictions within an organization which lead to its rise or its demise. And, and um, I, like I said, I think that's propaganda that they want to say, well, even if you have this great organization that, that's in 37 cities and states in the United States and in seven countries in the world, uh, J. Edgar Hoover or whoever is pushing a button can do something and disrupt everything and everything will be destroyed. That's not really... It's, it's up to uh, the internal organization. It's up to uh, the, 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 the leadership. It's up to the rank and file. Um, what happens in, in, in any organization, you have to um, do criticism and self-criticism. You have to look at the things that you do well and the things that you don't do well. You have to look at that on a regular basis and you have to correct the things that are not wrong and, and keep doing the things that you do right. And um, there were a lot of uh, um, the, 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 the effort that the Black Panther Party said, how we dispelled the uh, agents was we looked at what people did. We said social practices, the criteria, the truth. So you had to sell. 250 papers a week. You had to attend uh, the Breakfast for Children's program. You had you had to go to political education. And if you didn't do those things, people looked uh, kind of like, oh, he's he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And so you, if you weren't doing those things, you weren't trusted. And O'Neill did not go to the Breakfast program. O'Neill did not sell papers. So he was not trusted by a lot of people in the party. 
I mean, and and I think, yeah, he gave the the um, floor plan of, of Fred's apartment, but they could have got that from anywhere. You know, basically every every apartment on that block practically had the same layout. You know, you have a living room, you have a dining room, you have a kitchen. The kitchen's in the back. Uh, you come through the backyard and 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 the alley to get to the kitchen, and then. You know, you have a back porch. I mean, it's old Chicago housing. It wasn't like a, a major thing. Uh, and if they were going to kill Fred, they were going to kill Fred no matter what bed he was in or what room he was in. Um, so I don't think that Cointel Pro um, killed the party. It had an effect. It was It was significant, but it wasn't a death blow. You know, because the party existed uh, on and on uh, in Chicago and on a national level after Fred was killed. It just took away a very, very uh, bright and important person. Yeah, no, that I think that's a very good way of looking at it. Um, so as we wrap up this discussion, um, I, I feel like I've been a little bit uh, pessimistic about the anti-capitalist movements of today, but I also want to be a little optimistic because it seems like we have a lot of the raw materials that we would need in order to start rebuilding and challenging the power of capital, right? We have abolitionist politics are coming to the forefront of the public conversation in a way that they haven't before we've got anti-capitalist politics, you know, large proportions, large percentages of uh, young people are saying they don't support capitalism. We're seeing uprisings all over the world. Um, is there anything that gives you guys hope for the future that we're going to be able to do the thing to unfuck the world and complete the work of Fred Hampton, um, you know, before it's too late. I'm totally optimistic. I don't believe in negative thinking. I think that, um, uh, like Bob Marley says on the song war that good will overcome evil. It's just a matter of organizing the good people against the evil people. And, and like when you talk about the, um, uh, 99%, there's more of us than them. The question is, are they? Are we going to let them uh, divide us and conquer us? Or are we going to organize and, 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 and take away um, all this inequity, you know? Um, I, 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 I look at, you know, um, what, what happens now and because of technology and, and the Arab Spring and things like that, I think it's so much easier to mobilize and 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 bring our forces together than ever before. The only question I keep emphasizing is now we not just mobilize, but we also have to organize and 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 not just get people out for uh, an event, but to get them to do things between events. And and that's the key to uh, unlocking what needs to be done. I believe. Word. Any, there, any... there are many more people conscious now than there were in 1969. In, in 1969, you had uh, SDS. I'm talking about in Chicago, you had uh, Rising Up Angry. 
You had um, a few other sm small groups, but basically um, most of the people were, you know, like hippies and, you know, they really didn't care that much about politics. I mean, there were a lot of, you know, counterculture people, but not that many people who were that deep into uh, the struggle. And, and like the largest demonstrations that we had, there might be 5,000 people who came to, you know, like uh, when Bobby Seale came to Chicago when he was on trial in the Chicago, in his, um, Chicago 8 trial, which became the Ch Chicago 7 when he was severed from that trial. But nowadays, demonstrations are absolutely off the chain. Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, any any final thoughts on, on this? Tuesday? Do you have hope as well? No, I mean, I definitely agree. I have hope. Um, and I think, you know, trying to echo in some of what was already said, just what happened over the past, what's happened over the past several years um, in terms of just the pace of um, the pace of the movement. And um, I know it's, we, we've talked about militancy in a different way, I think in this conversation than you know, I'm using it now possibly, but um, the militancy of it, you know, um, I think is, is, uh, has been amazing. Um, and I think the, just the, the, the kinds of questions that I think we still need to ask ourselves, you know, while holding on to that hope is just how do we work through the process of, um, of kind of as as Brad was already saying, find ways, continuing fi continually finding ways to reach the people because I think that's one of the one of the things that we're still sort of struggling around is not just how do we um, not just how do we see um, like people fight back against the police or burn down a police station or um, really see. Um, the kind of uh, power that can be demonstrated on the street um, to have that be like a kind of common knowledge and an understanding that folks, when you know, when I've talked to young folks um, and some of the youth organizers that I used to work with in Chicago, you know, they're like, yeah, you know, talk to young people and they're like, they know that they can burn shit down. You know what I'm saying? And they know they can tear shit up. Um, the question I think that, that, we have to kind of deal with in terms of getting to a higher level is like, what can we do in terms of not just um, taking to the streets in, the, in those kind of way, but also try to figure out how to organize in a way that is oriented towards, um, you know, building up the kind of people power that gets mentioned in a few breadcrumbs here and there in the, in the, um, Judas and the black Messiah. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, how do we, um, orient ourselves to that kind of politics? I think it's just a, is a key question. And like the fact that we at least are in the position to ask that question is something that, um, you know, I'm, I'm that like, I'm not despairing about, you know, it's, it's obviously something that still needs to get figured out, but, um, it's not a, not a bad question to have to to wrestle with and to deal with, um, as opposed to a question where it's like, why, you know, why are people why are people fighting back or why are people um, 
finding ways to, um, to, you know, not just uh, be on the receiving end of the attacks, but actually be in a position to fight back. We've seen people fight back for some time now. It's just a question of how do we figure out the best way possible to do that? Yeah, maybe our goal can be that uh, they'll make an inaccurate movie about us one day. <laughs> that's, that's the thing to strive for is to see how you can... I mean, you know, I think the, the one thing that... Um, one way I, see, I saw somebody put it is uh, in addition to the inaccuracies, it's, um, you know, there's, I think there's, there's a question of making like a, trying to make, um, uh, have a, like a, a movie about involving revolutionaries, right? That's not a revolutionary film. And I think that's kind of some of the, the frustration that we've heard people voice is that they hear Fred Hampton, understands the movie, they would assume quite naturally that that's going to be a revolutionary film. And this is not a revolutionary film. It's a film about a revolutionary, which is, you know, um, a step forward in terms of what we have to, what we have an opportunity to see. But, um, you know, some of the most revolutionary films that people point to are the ones that are made after the revolution. So, you know, like being in a situation where we can see, um, not only the struggle that's taking place, but see it portrayed in a way where um, it, you know, it inspires people and it gives people a sense of um, not simply like asking the question, is it possible for us to win, but actually leaves people, you know, like confident in that being the outcome, Mm. right? That if we put in the work and if we, if we're smart and we're thoughtful, and we're committed to what we're doing, that we will win. Word. Well, it's been a real pleasure to talk to both of you. I know you're both working on books, so so hopefully when uh, when those come out, we can talk again, if not sooner. Brad, is there anything you'd like to add before we go? I think he summed up everything exactly, almost what I would say. He said it his way, but I would agree with him. I agree. Um, I'm just interested in... Um, uh, the film leading to, um, even though it wasn't a revolutionary film, it was a film about a revolutionary, maybe it will lead to uh, going from this level to a higher level and turning uh, a negative, uh, horrific film about Fred Hampton into something more positive. You know, if it leads to people becoming more conscious no matter how horrible it was, it, it, it's a good thing. You can jail revolutionaries, but you can't jail a revolution. Right. We need some guns. Black people need some peace. White people need some peace. And we are going to have to fight. We're going to have to struggle. We're going to have to struggle relentlessly to bring about some peace because the people that we're asking for peace they're a bunch of megalomaniac warmongers, and they don't even understand what peace means. We've got to fight them. We've got to struggle with them to make them understand what peace means. Like we always did, if you ask to make a commitment at the age of 20, and you say, I don't want to make that commitment, only because for the simple reason that I'm too young to die, I want to live a little bit longer. What you did, you did already. I'm saying something that might wake up some other exploited people and some other oppressed people, and if all these people ever get together, 
then these pigs that are exploiting us, we'll be able to run them into the lake. That's why they want to get rid of us. I don't believe I'm going to die from slipping on a piece of ice. I don't believe I'm going to die because I got a bad heart. I don't believe I'm going to die because of lung cancer. I believe that I'm going to be able to die what I was in the, in the things that I was born for. I believe that I'm going to be able to die high off the people. I believe that I will be able to die as a revolutionary in the international revolutionary post-tan struggle. Why don't you live for the people? Why don't you struggle for the people? Why don't you die for the people? We say Panther Powers and Vanguard Party. Before you go to bed and say I am a revolutionary, make that the last word. <laughs> say that. I am a revolutionary. <laughs>